Hello, come on in and pull up a chair for the podcast where we feed famous folk whilst the conversation flows. My guest today is a comedian, writer and actress. She first became big news as one of the team that created the groundbreaking BBC sketch show Goodness Gracious Me, first on radio and then on TV in the 1990s, as well as writing her semi-autobiographical novel Anita and Me, which has become a school set text. She is hugely in demand as an actor, most recently appearing in The Devil's Hour with Peter Capaldi for Amazon Prime and Raw for Apple TV alongside Nicole Kidman. It's the wondrous Mira Sayal. You've been asked about things you'd like still to do. Mm. Cleopatra. <laughs> You'd make a bloody good Cleopatra. Do you think so? Thank you. Well, get off me barge. Get off me barge. Who's Aspisis? Welcome to Bermondsey Street in South East London, just across the Thames. I'm standing outside the restaurant Pizarro, which is the eponymous restaurant of the great chef Jose Pizarro. There are many great Spanish chefs in London, but I think Jose really has a reasonable claim to be one of the very best. Mira does not eat meat, she eats fish, and Jose has a lot of really good seafood stuff on his menu. We have a table in a private dining room at the back, and I think she's going to like it. Let's go inside. Mira! Hello, come on in. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Right. In the series, Mrs. Sindhu Investigates, Yes. you play uh, an Indian cook. I do. You've also talked about your mother's cooking as mm. an act of memory when you were growing up. Yeah. What was the dish that defined that for you at home? Was there something specific? Sorry, I'm going to have to have some bread before I answer that. I'm a bread monster. Are you? Oh, my God. This is good. Good sourdough from just down the road here in Bermondsey. You tell me that while I steal one of these olives with orange in them. Well, it's not really a dish, but I suppose it's it's the way that she served it. A freshly made chapati off the griddle. What my mum would do, and, and there's something that shows so much love when somebody takes a chapati right off the griddle. Yeah. Asbestos hands. So she would take it off the griddle in her hands put a big knob of butter on it and then kind of give it a little squeeze so it sort of oh, wow. closed like a flower and then she put it on the plate and it would open like a flower and all the butter had melted. But it was that act of, I love you so much, I'm going to stand here and make this fresh and I'm going to serve it to you as you're eating. I remember those kind of gestures probably more than the dishes themselves because most of the dishes were wonderful. She was such an amazing cook. Did she teach you to make them? Oh, yeah. And do you make them now and feed them to your family in the same loving, familial way. You're just going to make me feel bad now, no, aren't no, you? No, you don't. <laughs> um, I do occasionally make chapati, but it's, it's kind of a big deal when I do. I make prondi quite a lot, stuff pronda I make. Right. Um, but that whole thing of serving everybody else, you see, those are the things you kind of stop doing when you're the next generation on because that is loaded with so much other thing like yeah. I'm going to stand and serve while the rest of the family eat the men eat first the women eat last don't do that anymore so I'm going to introduce you to this is Peter who will be serving us hi, nice hello. hello hi should we get you a drink over here would you like to I'll have a a virgin mojito. Well, let me see her. They're mocktails. Yeah. I didn't know they yeah. were mocktails. Mm. Can I try a virgin mojito as well? Thank you. We are almost linked through the black country because my wife uh, grew up in Stowbridge. Did she? She did, all right. Oh, and it's the only accent I claim to be... I'm not even sure I can. <laughs> she has an alter ego called Janet. Oh, Janet. Janet yeah. from... Uh, from 
from Stour Bridge? Stour Bridge or Hail Zoe. Is that or... when she tells you off? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the Jack Danny no, voice. sexy times. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should have a look at this menu. Okay. I have some ideas. Do go on them, yeah. All right. I think Padron Peppers should be done just because Absolutely. if they're on a the menu, they should be there. Down there is a raw blue belly prawns with salt and lime. That sounds good. What do you mean raw? Like They will course. be sort of cured by the lime and the salt. Really? A bit like a ceviche. Okay, Sushi. I'll try that. Um, and then down below that, the air-cured tuna with marinated hake. Also sounds wonderful. And wild mushrooms with a, uh, with a fino sauce. Do you, do you not do alcohol or you, do you not drink at all? I know I do occasionally, right. yeah, yeah. I'll be happy with There won't with be that. much sherry knocking around in there. <laughs> and a bigger thing is the fedua, which is sort of noodles in a, with seafood in a big paella pan, which we share. And That sounds wonderful. You trust me on this? I love it when people order for me. Do you? I do. Oh, and obviously, one of the things they do brilliantly here are croquettes. So, and it's mushroom croquettes today, which is perfect. You fancy some char-grilled sweet corn on the side with that? I'm saying yes to everything. Okay, yeah. fine. <laughs> and, and maybe a, a, a salad of some kind, either the... The lechuga? Yeah, the lechuga. That'll do us, won't it? Okay, sounds like a good plan. Good. Thank you. You went and did, was it drama at Manchester? Drama, uh, drama in English. You write a play, you take it to Edinburgh, a one-person play. Mm. How did you fund that? Because that would, would have been, what, 83? Yeah, yeah. So... I'm guessing. Well, it was written with my dear friend Jackie Shapiro. So, um, and she was, is Jewish, and that's where our big connection was, because, you know... I was the only woman of colour that had ever been in that drama department. I was the only woman of colour in the English department. So I was still alone. That still feels amazing. It, isn't it, really, when you say it now? Mushroom croquettes. Um, mm. They might have quite a soft centre, so... OK. What's that cheese in there? You've fallen slightly silent, Mira, which is useless for a podcast. I know, um. but <laughs> the food has to be given its due, it's right? Also, I'm so glad we're eating with our fingers. Mm. God's cutlery. Well, <laughs> what, three quarters of the world's population eat with their fingers? Yeah, of course. Oh, something else arriving. Yes, the raw blueberry pops. Mm. Oh, aren't oh, they beautiful? Little serried ranks, they're like little soldiers lined up on the plate. I can smell the sea. And we're in Bermondsey. And we're... <laughs> mm. Wow. Can I squirt some lime across them? Yeah, go on then. Sorry, we keep getting interrupted. Yeah, so you, you go out to Edinburgh and the, the, the play is about an Indian, a girl, an Asian girl auditioning. It's, it was called One of Us, about an, uh, a young Indian girl who's run away from home because she wants to become an actress. Go figure, how I came up with that. I imagine. No one really seen a South Asian woman do comedy. Hardly seen one on stage, to be honest, at that point. Um, but I played all the different characters and so... The young girl talks to the audience as if they're at the audition with her. It was a kind of creed occur, really. I, I did it in my final year because I thought, well, I'm obviously never going to be a professional actress because I don't know how to become one. Uh, I don't see anybody looking like me, so even if I got there, what would I play? Yeah. And that was the studio performance on Manchester University's yeah, campus? Yeah, one night, and... one night only. And then from there, a director called Carol Heyman at the Royal Court. No, Carol Hayman. Yeah, saw me in this one woman show and said, I'm doing a play at the Royal Court with Joint Stock. It's a nine month. What was the Do you want it? The Great Celestial Cow by Sue Townsend. Right. 
which was about South, was about South Asian women. Um, and that is how I got <laughs> my equity card and my first job was at the Royal Court. Things are going to carry on lining up on the table. This is the Ericure Tuna Mohammed. Mmm. That looks Pink incredible. That's very... It's so beautiful. Thank you. It's a sort of disc broken up with little cubes of cucumber and some what almost looks like ham, ham but isn't. It's mm. air-dried tuna mm. with some crackers on the side. Wowie. It's an amazing start. Oh, just incredible and ridiculous and a sliding doors moment, obviously. It really was, but... Here's a question for you, which you, I don't think you've addressed. Mm. Did you accept that you had exceptional talent? Because none of these things happen accidentally. You'd written a play, obviously with your friend... Mm -hmm. Jackie. Jackie Shapiro. Yeah. And so obviously and many people are involved. Mm. But you're the one who went, who was on the stage. You won awards. You went to Edinburgh. You won awards. And you're cast for any student actor, which is what you were, to be picked up by the Royal Court for a play. That's amazing. And that only happens for one reason, which is you're good. You see, even now you're looking a bit uncomfortable <laughs> with it, aren't you? May, I think maybe that was I've peaked. I think that was <laughs> I think that was okay. the height of it, frankly. I think what I had was I was unique at the time. I was unusual. People had not seen somebody like me before. Certainly, never seen an, an Asian woman doing comedy before. That was people didn't think we had a sense of humour. Was that a case when you when you arrived there? It was going oh, there are more people like me. Oh, pardon peppers. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, that was the that was what I felt generally coming into London in the 80s was suddenly finding my tribe, suddenly finding all the odd immigrant kids like me that grew up biculturally. We were also on sniggering in the corner thinking, is anyone else seeing the joke? Oh, it's just me, okay. And I did think I was a bit mad because I would be laughing or getting angry about stuff that didn't seem to bother anybody else, just me. And then I get to London and here are all my, my soulmates. Here are all these other kids that didn't fit in, that, you know, Asian kids that wanted to be creative, whose parents thought that was the end of everything because, you know, you're just going to starve in an attic. Um, and here we all were laughing at the same things. And that's why, goodness gracious me, was such an explosion of joy and authenticity because that's where we vented all of this stuff we were carrying around with us. Which is a good segue into goodness gracious me. <laughs> Yeah. The birth of which was lengthy, wasn't it? Or, or, oh, the, yes. or the journey of which was yeah. lengthy. It was. And again, one of those sort of lovely organic sort of coming together, which looking back all seems, you know, fated in some way. But actually, maybe it was just the atmosphere that was around really in the, the late 80s, early 90s, where there really did seem to be a genuine need and desire to listen to different voices. Alternative comedy had really kicked the establishment up the arse and go, you can't actually do those jokes anymore. Well, you can, but they're not very funny and they're lazy and there must be other ways. And into that came the real McCoy and goodness gracious me and smack the pony and the fast show. I think, I think this is something that people don't necessarily <clears throat> grasp that goodness gracious me was almost nurtured inside the real McCoy, wasn't it? Mm. 
that you you had various parts in that. And the Real McCoy was a black comedy show. It was, yeah, very much so. And I was just a guest on it, a guest writer and a guest performer. And uh, it was a fabulous experience. But I was really aware that you know it wasn't it wasn't specifically about my culture. I was happily writing for this amazing bunch of um, performers and writers that kindly welcomed me and to cut my teeth, really, because there was nowhere else for me to go where I could practice this kind of sketch comedy. And um, Anil Gupta was a, a script editor on that. Uh, and Corvinda Gear was a performer that had come and worked with me on a couple of sketches. And I used to say to Anil, or what we both talk about, you know, we have such specific references that make us two laugh. Surely there is a version of this we could do that is specifically for our culture, isn't there? Is there enough of us? And so Anil was the person that kind of put the team together. So he'd seen Sanjeev and Nina and Nitin Sawney actually at that time all performing uh, in various places, comedy venues around London, and he brought the team together. Before you get into that, I, I'm going to make you... Make score, me eat it. Uh, Yeah, make you get a, 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 a scoop a load of it onto your plate. It just has right. to be done. How do I cut it like a pizza? I, I have no idea. This is my first rodeo as well. May I serve some for you, or do you want to do your own? Go for it. So tell me what's in this again. Air-dried hake, mm. almond, cucumber. I'm just staring at it, actually, to work that out. So it's strangely sweet, isn't it? I've never tasted anything like that. Well, that's good. Who wrote the totemic <laughs> sketch going for an English? Twenty-four plates of chips. Yeah, have um, the blandest thing on, on the menu. menu. Um, which so cut through. It, it, yeah. That gag was so good. Yeah. It immediately described exactly what the whole show was. Didn't it just? Yeah, it's genius. Uh, voted the fifth funniest sketch ever by, by you know. Well, I'd love to know what the other public. four were. I think that. Do you know what? We're so happy to be in the top ten. Um, that was written by Sharat Sadana and Richard Pinto, who are two of our main writers on the show. And it, yeah, it was. Um, the most simple reversal sketch, right? Yeah. Holding up a mirror to how the host community saw us. But what was so brilliant about it is that I think previously we were the silent people serving you in restaurants or mending your broken bones or handing you your newspaper and your fangs, but no one ever thought of us as having wit, irony and a sense of humour. And you know, always the butt of jokes and ever the people making the jokes. And suddenly, a whole power shift and that, that sketch did it. Was it a shock to you when it cut through in the way it did? It was first on the radio, wasn't it? And then mm. turned up in the TV series right in the first episode. Right, exactly. As I remember. We knew when it did well on Radio 4, people went, hang on. Asians don't listen to Radio 4 at 10 o'clock on a Friday night. That means that Middle England is listening to this. And Middle England like it. So if Middle England like this, then maybe it's got a chance to do well on television. So that sealed us getting a pilot. But as you say, it was a long process from doing a live show and then the radio and then one pilot, not even a series, and then a series. And all very low budget, but, you know. I sometimes wonder whether actually that kind of process is not necessarily a bad thing. You can't replicate authenticity in that way. And the, the authentic bit of it was that we had nothing to lose, that we were genuinely doing the stuff that made us laugh. We weren't thinking we weren't writing it for a demographic. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. If we're going to throw Punjabi or Hindi in it, we're going to do it. If you don't get it, you don't get it. You want to find out what chuddies are? Ask your Indian friends. <laughs> so there was 
And I think that unapologetic approach and joyful approach, you're just going, well, here it is, whatever it is, like it or don't like it, see you by it. It's um, very liberating. Was there much of a, I mean, obviously, we, we, we tend to talk about how the non-Asian community responds. Mm. The Asian community, they didn't all take kindly to everything, did they? They didn't. Um, but that, that's what you'd expect, really. We were taking some pot shots, um, but at ourselves as well as the host sure. community, and there, were there was plenty to satirise. But fundamentally, it was affectionate. A lot of it was to do with family. We never took specific pot shots at religion, for example. That was always a no-no because it didn't really interest us, to be honest. We're much more interested about the hypocrisy around religion right. rather than a religion itself. And um, I think we won even the hardest critics over, really, despite the fact some bits might have made them feel uncomfortable or challenged. It's, the show's lasted. I, we oh, yeah. all still get stopped by Pushed people it. on the street saying, I grew up watching you, which of course makes you feel delighted and old at the same time, but you love hearing it. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Party on the Beach. Yes. What, what most intrigues me about that is the way it got commissioned, which you have <laughs> described as, what, a 10-minute meeting? If that. It's crazy. Karen Bamborough. I owe her a lot. At uh, Film 4? Yeah. So what? And why did you get the meeting anyway? So I had written a screen two called My Sister Wife, which had done quite well, which was really the first thing I ever wrote for television. And she'd seen it. And so she called me in and said, have you got any other ideas? And did you have an idea or did it come to you as you were sat in the meeting? It kind of came to me, but I have been thinking about it because I remember, I but, really remember going on trips with, you know, me aunties and other big Indian families and a big sort of family group. And, and this is to the beach, to, the, to a seaside. To a seaside town, because being a Brummie, we All were right. very, very far from the sea. You're and about I, as far as it's possible to be. As it's possible to be. And then think about how people in seaside towns used to react to a big bunch of Indians coming with their pat lunches, with their curries wrapped in silver foiling in Tupperware, speaking a different language in their different clothes. I mean... As a child, it was excruciatingly embarrassing. And you're embarrassed to admit that. That's like, I'm not with these people. I'm British, actually. And I think that's why the whole Bargy on the Beach idea came, because I thought there's, you know, you're nowhere confronted more with this where do I belong than you are in a British seaside town in that decade sure. with your Indian family. It was a, a big critical success, the film. Yeah. Coming right up to date, do you ever think that that commissioning experience on Bargy on the Beach possibly ruined you for f 
future work and how it was going to be. It totally did. I mean, I wasn't joking when I said I peaked early because it's, you know, I haven't had much on in the last few years. It's become a very different By not having much on, we're talking about stuff you've written. Yeah. Rather, rather than, you've been in everything, I everywhere. Have, yeah, it's been a good run. I can't, I can't um, deny that. But yeah, it's so much harder to get stuff on now. And I wonder if, honestly, if Bargy on the Beach would be made now. Because to date, it is still, I think... The only mainstream British film written and directed by South Asian women that I can think of. Did Gurinder write all her own? Gurinder Chadha wrote... First, yes. Wrote. I meant the first, yeah. Yeah. But certainly, yes, it's just been Gurinder, really. I think Nida Manzoor, who's really talented. Um, lady Parts, We Are Lady Parts, that amazing Channel 4 series about a Muslim punk, punk band. band yeah. I believe she's got um, a couple of things coming out, which is very exciting. Do you find yourself looking at that going, Christ alive, it's 2022 and I started no, doing yeah. this in the 80s and where are we? Yes, I do occasionally. But on the other hand, if I just look at Britain, I would think, where are I? But the streamers have really changed our view of everything and everyone is now thinking globally. Everyone's well, that, you've made a really interesting point. You're about, I don't know if it's been released yet, Raw, the Apple TV thing. Yes, yeah. So you're engaging with, clearly you're doing stuff with streamers. Yes. And it's because streamers have to reach a global audience yeah. that they can't just pander to some notion of white middle class. No, it's age. changed so much. Some people might argue not for the better because it's munching up content and maybe it does push you into, you know, much broader banner headline, clickbaity kind of ideas, but not necessarily. I don't because know. I, I watch lots of, you know, I'm. We're, we all go looking for the, the next great series. I keep watching stuff and thinking, this would never have been commissioned by the Beeb or by Channel exactly. 4 or anybody. This stuff is weird and niche and fabulous. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And that is the brilliant thing. It's, 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 it's almost really democratised the whole process of writing and making, making programmes in a way that the internet did with music and many other things, that you could bypass somebody, some middle manager going, I don't think that will sell and just go, do you know what, I'm going to do it myself and put it out there and I'll know whether it's good or not. You did say at one point that autonomy, this was a lesson given to you by black artists working in, in New York, autonomy is the first stage of revolution. Yeah. In other words, do it for yourself because if you keep knocking on the door to try and get them to let you in, it's not going to work. Absolutely. And I still believe that. And that's why to be creative, I think you've got to be the engine of... Your own narrative, really. You know, the Black Theatre of Harlem, that's exactly what they did. They didn't go looking for anybody else's approval. They made their own work in their own neighbourhood with their own people and told their own stories, and people found them. And that was the mark of their success, is that we have owned the stories we want to tell. Now you want to hear them. We'll decide whether we want to work with you or not. We'll decide how these go out into the world. Now... That sounds idealistic and, you know, we're in a business, so there are compromises, but I think the principle is right. And um, certainly for my generation, people didn't know where to put us. You know, we didn't know if there was an audience for our stories. We didn't know if there was a place for us in a creative industry that had really not acknowledged our presence at all. We had to create those pathways. But at the same time, we also surely just wanted to be an actor. Yeah, and yeah. And be absolutely. cast in all the stuff, yeah. rather than... Was there a moment where you felt that was happening for you? A particular part that comes along, you go, oh, hang on, that's interesting. You... Shirley Valentine, probably. 
broke some barriers, I think. You did that on stage, didn't you? Yes. It's a two and a half hour one woman show. And People forget that because they've seen the films. Yeah. And she was a Liverpool housewife and not one word of it was changed to accommodate the fact that, you know, I was a brown Liverpool housewife. And it was quite an extraordinary experience, actually. Uh, really tough. I mean, it's lonely doing a one-person show, but actually the other people on stage with you are the audience. And How did that come about? Was it, you just approached and said, yeah. would you like to do it? Yeah, and I auditioned with Willie Russell in the room, and he went, yeah, I think you can do it. And it was kind of very quietly revolutionary in its own way. How long did you do it for? I did it for two months at the Menier Chocolate Factory, just around the corner mm. from where we are now, and then it went to the West End for three, four months in a double bill with um, Educating Rita. Um, you get quite a lot of, uh, how do I refer to them, professional women of authority. <laughs> Magistrates, judges, <laughs> psychotherapists. Oh, psychotherapist. You're playing a psychotherapist in the devil's hour right now. I don't mind psychotherapists. I quite... Do you like I, them? I, yeah. That could have been an alternative career once upon a time. <laughs> well, you said, you're, yeah. you know, yeah. you trained for it. Yeah, and I think most actors are quietly psychotherapists in their own way, with their own characters, with the characters they choose. We start from the inside and work out, trying to work out who this person is that we're going to play, so. Casting directors. Yes. Obviously there are some brilliant casting directors, but in the conversations I've had with actors, mm. it often seems to turn back round to the decisions they take and the, dare I say it, less than enlightened decisions they mm. take. Mm -mm -mm the way they see people. Yeah. Is that fair? Or are, are casting directors just the instrument of the directors that they're casting for? Actually, casting directors have a lot of power. They're hugely influential um, and can be on an actor's career. And it's only really recently that they've actually been given their proper status and power. So now they're a casting director awards and there's a category, various award ceremonies, which, you know, I just think tells you how important they are. Thank you. <gasps> That's, again, really beautiful. What is all this? It, it is vermicelli. So it's a, it's a kind of... I know it very well. We have it in Indian food. Yes. Almost every culture has it. Yes. So it's a, it's a, a noodle. I've never seen it on paella. Thank you so much. It's, a sort of, it's sort of a, a noodle version of paella with a lot of cuttlefish cooked through it. And the bit at the bottom where it crusts is meant to be sofrito. highly prized. It's the sofrito. Thank it's, you. Go for it. Um, How is that? Oh, my Lord. That's something else. It's a classic. You get it beachside shacks. Sort of. Oh, yeah. A little garlic. Right. Parsley garlic. AOE. I think that's amazing. Jesus. And I actually, dare I say, I think I might prefer this to a rice paella. So she cast you in that, and it was... Yes, Lisa Macon, the amazing Lisa Macon, cast, suggested me for Shirley Valentine, and she changed the course of my life. I have to say, there are some amazing ones coming up that are really brave and bold and diverse in their choices. Kelly Valentine Hendry is one, Shaheen Baig is another. Well, I'm just about to ask. Gina Jay. In fact, funnily enough, they're all women, but, you know, amazing. We, we talk a lot about actors of colour. Hmm. Are there many casting directors of colour? Not many. But that's, that's a problem, isn't it? Much more than there were. Much more. Leo Davis was the first one that I ever met, and she was the only one for many years. But there's, there's more now. 
So when people get upset, as they sometimes have, I, actually they didn't really get upset by David Copperfield. There were a few, but they were assholes. So. I thought that was such a wonderful film, didn't you? I loved it. Oh, it's beautiful and the spirit of it, just amazing. And, and the point of that, that they were all just cast because they were the best actors to do that, those parts, mm. rather than making any particular point. Mm. It was like, when I watched Bridgerton, did you watch any of Bridgerton? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one point that really annoyed me, mm. that there is a line, I think it's late in the first series, where one character explains to another why it's such a, an ethnically diverse world. Oh, I don't remember that. Uh, it's it's a comment that. about the Queen coming from a different ethnic background to the King and that's why everybody in society... And I was, I kind of, I was hugely disappointed um, by it, thinking, why have you done that? You didn't need to. Maybe to stop the, the pedants going, but that wouldn't happen, because I do remember reading that this particular Queen was, in fact, mixed race. Oh, yeah. It is weird that you ask people to believe that people can travel through time or... Well, it's, it's like the whole argument over Doctor Who. Yeah. You've got two, he or she, you've got two hearts, is an interdimensional being, lives for 20,000 years, but they can't have ovaries and be black. <laughs> and then the stories we tell, however modern, how, however realistic, firstly, whose version of reality? Because as we know, history belongs to those who had the power to write it down. Right? But also, it shouldn't just be reflective, it should be aspirational. It should not only reflect a world that we live in, but the world that we might want to live in. And there was a very interesting article that came out, and I've been trying to trace it because I've quoted it a couple of times, where some clever persons at an American university had traced the number of black presidents that had appeared in movies before Obama's election. Before there was one? Yes. And was their point being that, their point, that it was the handmaiden to the election of? Yes. Because by introducing something that people said, well, that would never happen, but introducing it as normal, as a possibility, it ingrained in people yeah. the idea that it could happen and why shouldn't it happen? And, oh, there's another black president. OK, I'm beginning to accept this. So basically, Obama should have thanked Morgan Freeman, who's yeah. always made a brilliant, yes. a brilliant president. You believe him as a president. But through a series of very clever algorithms, yeah. no doubt, they actually proved that the appearance of four or five or six black presidents in these big blockbuster films, therefore, when a real Obama came along, eased his path because somewhere in our buried consciousness, we began to accept that that was not only a possibility, but could be a reality. And that's why what but, we put on screen is quite important. You said that history's, you know, written by the people who grabbed the pen. Are you one of them? Do you feel that you should I... be responsible for writing in a way that opens the world up? Yeah, I, and to put it like a responsibility feels like it's a burden. It's not, yeah. it's a joy. I mean, I do still wake up some days and still pinch myself and go, you're making a living out of the thing you love. Well, you have had a massive impact in, in one particular corner, Anita and Me, your novel about an Asian girl growing up, GCSE set text. Mm. In other words, millions of kids year mm. after year being exposed to that story. Yep. I have to say that. Bloody hell, Mira, that's, that's proper, isn't it? That's one of the proudest moments of my life was when I was in a bookshop and there were study guides on Anita and me. There were pictures of me in my childhood, of my parents. 
There was pages about partition and about the first wave of immigrants and the rivers of blood speech in 68 and all this stuff that when you're living through it, you think, will anyone remember us? Will anyone know what this felt like? And now to know that I can't tell you what that means, you know, on on, on so many levels. I Uh, feel like we're not invisible anymore. But that was quite, quite a moment. There is something about needing to be validated in some way. I mean, that when I understand that whole thing about to testify, to bear witness, seems to me a very important thing for a human being, actually. My father, who, and actually today is his birthday, <laughs> would have been his birthday, so it's very nice we're talking about him. Hi, hi, Pops. But he carried around this kind of melancholy with him most of his life, and you would hear it when he sang beautiful chuzzles, um, songs in Urdu, beautiful poetry, and there was a kind of aching, and this, what was this sad secret about my dad, which I think was one of the reasons I loved him, because that was the impenetrable bit of him which I didn't understand until he started talking about partition, when I started asking the questions. It is bizarre. I don't think people, even now, even mm. though we've, you know, marked what, yeah. 75 years this year. 75 years, yeah. Really understood just how arbitrary the drawing of that line was and the impact it had on the population and why so many people died as a result of it. Well, it's still probably the biggest mass migration in modern history, but it was a huge part of my childhood, and I felt it when my father stood on a street corner in Lahore, having found the house that he fled when he was 13 with his eight brothers and sisters, and saw people massacred on the street and was on one of the trains of death. He saw that, he was 13, and he ended up in a refugee camp, and he had to study under street lamps, and at points they were starving. It had an absolutely (coughs) profound effect on him and the entire family. And when he stood on the street corner in Lahore and the story that he'd held in for 50 years poured out of him, I saw the weight drop. And he he seemed to me a different man after that, slightly different man. Maybe I'm romanticising it, but it feels to me like because he could tell his story, he was seen and he was heard. And that was really healing. And you got to hand on the story or elements of it through Anita and me. Yeah. And that's why writing that book, I didn't write it for any other reason other than I want, I want people to know we were here and what we lived through and that we have been a huge part of British society for many yeah. years. This relationship has gone on for hundreds of years. My contribution matters and this is why we're here. You've been asked about things you'd like still to do. Mm. Cleopatra. <laughs> You'd make a bloody good Cleopatra. Do you think so? Thank you. Well, get off me barge. Get off me barge. <laughs> <laughs> Who's asp is this? <laughs> you had that 10 minute commission on Barge on the Beach. Mm. This almost sounds like maybe intruding on private grief, but are you still trying to get things commissioned now? Have you yeah. got scripts out there which you've worked on? Oh, oh, I could paper my entire house with rejections. It's like the Wild West at the moment. There's so much need for content, and things change really quickly. But you've also got to be ready to, you know, you'll get a commission quickly and it's that we want it now. It's just the pace of things is much quicker. I grew up on, you know, Play for Today and Screen 2, which were one-off slots. 
which for me were perfect for new writers to sort of cut their teeth, and that's how I learned. It's very hard for new writers to find those opportunities now. You kind of jump from, you know, maybe hardly ever writing anything to go in the writer's room if they run one and then do a series. But where are those beautiful one-off pieces? For Sometimes it's just a, it's a single beautiful story that you want to tell. So the market has changed. Yeah, I think I've just taken too long on things probably, to be honest, because I'm trying to juggle the acting as well. And you've got to be right on it. It's got to be your full-time thing and that's all you do. It's, it's... Having said that, I've got two commissions for a, a film and a three-parter, which are both pretty promising and I am working on them and they're being very understanding about me working around my acting jobs. Well, I absolutely look forward to seeing them on screen. I'll just do that as the optimistic. Yes, on screen. They're going to happen, obviously. On screen, because your work is absolutely brilliant. We still have a bit more fadua to get through. Mm. There's a bit of salad there. But for now, I will say, Miracel, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you, and I'm still eating. You are still eating. You can carry on eating. That's really sad. No, no, we haven't finished. It's just that if we carry on recording, she's going to have hours and hours to edit. (laughs) Well, I really don't think I could have chosen a better person to introduce Vidua to than Mira. That's the paella-style dish we had, but made with noodles, and it's fabulous. Do check it out at Pizarro's. He has restaurants at Bermondsey, Broadgate, and the Royal Academy in London. Go to josepizarro.com. That's J-O-S-E-P-I-Z-A-R-R-O.com. And you can catch Mira in the Devil's Hour on Prime Video. Uh, Mrs. Sidhu Investigates is coming soon on Acorn TV, and Raw is on Apple TV+. Uh, If you love this show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with simply everyone and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts because we deserve it. It makes us feel better about ourselves. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged, and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Paul Brogdon, and the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hawkins. Selena Ream is the producer, and the executive producer is Ollie Wilson. Next time, I sit down for lunch with the staggeringly brilliant star of With Nail 9, so much more besides, it's Richard E. Grant. Somebody slapped my ass in 1976, somebody that I was going out with, and I won't tell you her name, um, in my first year of university, and I said, what's that? And she said, oh, I like that. And I said, mm, I'm gone, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm not up for that. <laughs>